more episodes. We are back with you. It's May. It is getting hotter out there, we think. And uh, we are here for your first May episode. And before we introduce our topic, uh, as always, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are the Rebecca. <laughs> Killed it for Mother's Day. Fantastic. So we are, it is, we're getting ready for summer. So if your summer plans bring you to Washington, check out our tours. We want to meet you all. We have had so many people come up to us uh, on tours and say that they have found us through the pod and it's just such a delight every single time. So definitely check out um, if you're coming to DC as the days get hotter and longer. We also want to give a shout out to our patron episode, our patrons. Um, you get a special patron only episode. So make sure you're getting your patron benefits we are oh so grateful to our patrons this pod has been going on two years and you've been such a help and it's literally you guys are making this happen uh, so thank you thank you our may patron episode is going to be about the origins of memorial day so yeah may has a couple big holidays obviously mother's day which i have to note this year, Mother's Day falls on my birthday, which happens like every three or four years, which also, if you are a longtime listener of the podcast, you know I share a birthday with a president, Harry S. Truman. So if you're not listening to our Truman episode, you can go back into the archives because this year, my birthday, Truman's birthday, Mother's Day are all the same day. So May 8th <gasps> this year, you can so celebrate exciting. me, celebrate Truman, celebrate your mother, uh, and celebrate some other special mothers that we're about to talk about. But um, I have to note, we've got a, a, that's a very special day this year. And then of course, at the end of the month, we'll have Memorial Day. And uh, we're going to do a special patron episode for Memorial Day. And if you want to know more about Memorial Day, we have some great episodes in our archives. So just be sure to check those out if you're a new listener and haven't started from the beginning. And so, as Becca mentioned, we're going to talk about Mother's Mother's Day topic. Happy Mother's Day to all the mommies. And we love you the most. Mothers really are, particularly in this pandemic, uh, what is making the world go, honestly. Mothers are the best. And so with that in mind, we thought we would talk about some mothers who aren't getting, as we found, sort of the credit that they deserve. I think a lot of mothers don't get enough credit or due. But we have discovered, y'all, that mothers of American presidents talk about an under-documented, researched topic because we would not have a single one of our presidents if it was not for their mothers. That is biologically true, yes. And more so, (laughs) right? Um, It raises the question, is a president born? Is he made? Is he sculpted? And in many cases, these women often provide some key elements to what makes a person a president. And yet, these women are not particularly well-researched. That's not true across the board. There's actually, and we'll put in the show notes, one great book that looks at 11 more contemporary presidential mothers. Um, so there are some some people doing the scholarship. There's a great biography of George Washington by Alexis Coe, who we talk about on this podcast a lot. And she and her Washington biography definitely gives, I think, good time to Mary Ball Washington. But overwhelmingly, this is a tough yeah. topic to research Extremely and it often sort of just gets like a little mention. You might see a cute little picture of a president with their mom, but that's sort of it. And I think there's a few reasons for this, right? Yes. Yeah. Patriarchy being one, <laughs> one of them. 
Um, <laughs> especially for early presidents uh, whose mothers are even older than they are, right? From the 17th century, um, early 18th century, or 18th century, early 19th century, you've got a lack of documentation, a lack of correspondence and things that have been preserved and saved. Um, so there is sort of that, even if you wanted to research, there's a real lack of first person primary documents out there for some of these women. It's really, the dearth surprised me. And when I was going through, like, there's a few, um, I was looking at some of the earliest mothers and, you know, many of these women were born obviously before photography. So there's no like photograph of them, but I was looking and there was, as I was flipping through, there was no, I noticed Wikipedia page for James Madison's mother, Nellie. And I thought, wow, that's weird. And then I kept going and there was no Wikipedia page for uh, the mother of his successor, Elizabeth Jones Monroe, uh, Elizabeth Hus uh, Hutchinson Jackson, Maria Van Buren, Elizabeth Bassett Harrison. FYI, if you want to be an early president, having a mother named Elizabeth seems to be helpful. Um, <laughs> a lot of Elizabeths. A lot of Elizabeths. I kept going through and and there are 23 mothers of presidents who do not have a Wikipedia page. We've had 45 men be president of the United States. Grover Cleveland was president twice. Obviously, he has the same mother both times. Uh, and there, so 23 out of 45 do not have a Wikipedia page. They, and I understand, like... That's over 50%. I understand. Like, I'm a historian. I know Wikipedia is imperfect and flawed at best. It is certainly not the marker. But there's no easy way to just go on Wikipedia and tell where Mary McDonough Johnson, mother of Andrew Johnson, where she was born, when she was born, a likeness of her, when she died. Like, that's that should be... I feel like there should be more information. Another thing that jumped out at me is how many presidents' names comes from their mother's maiden name. For example, uh, we've got Victoria, um, oh shoot, uh, Jesse Woodrow Wilson. Jesse Woodrow was her, Woodrow was her maiden name. Jesse is also the name of one of his daughters. So it makes a lot of like family things make sense. This comes to more or less more recent times. There is not a Wikipedia page for Rebecca Baines Johnson, mother of Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was president in the 60s. Like, that's a thing. There's no, I just, it was stunning to me how, like, criminally understudied and undervalued uh, a lot of these presidents, uh, mothers are and were. And even doing research for this podcast, you know, unless um, the National Park Service site or the presidential library or an individual archive has really taken the time to gather information um, about a president's mother. I'll point to Mount Vernon as a pretty good example of a site that's put in that time. But a lot of these women, even if you go to the next best thing that you think you might look at, National Park Service or kind of presidential libraries, there's not a lot easy. And I didn't do a full documentation of every presidential mother, but my guess is this disparity continues down through a lot of these these other sites and, and web pages. So this was kind of intended to be, and it is a fun topic, right? Let's talk about presidents and their mothers, but it sort of opened up a little bit of this can of worms and sort of this question of, you know, if you wanted to know about the women that shaped the men that become president, where are you going to go to find it? Uh, and I think this is an area that's, that's open for a lot more research, a lot more scholarship and a lot more public discourse. Listen, if someone wants to give us a book advance, Becca and I, I will write this book. I will do the research. I will go to these archives and find as much as possible. Like, let's make this happen. There should be a book, like sort of a general overview of like the women who literally shaped 
the men who become the leaders of this country. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, that said, for this episode, we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit. We're going to do some quick shout outs, some mentions. We'll talk about a few women we think are interesting. One, almost each and every one of these women is deserving of their own episode. Um, some of these women have a life so long and rich. Uh, we were talking about Rose Kennedy before we started recording. Like, the woman lives more than a century. She lives through some of the greatest uh, tragedies of the 20th century. That That's still like a full episode situation. So if we don't mention your favorite presidential mother or we don't mention your favorite president's mother um you can always pitch us and we can do a full episode i also will say that you know these women are unique they're unique in their backgrounds their experiences but there is sort of a trend and this is certainly i think more of a you know anecdotal rather than scientific evidence but across the board many of these women will have lives that are steeped in trials tribulations tragedy. Um, when you really take a look at some of what these women experience in their marriages, in their homes, uh, in their economic situations, these are women that more often than not have to overcome a lot of obstacles and difficulties. And so it's sort of a fascinating question of, does that mean, what does that influence does that have on their mm -hmm. children, particularly the young man who will become president someday? Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of one of those are, is that what shapes it or is it just coincidental? I'm not enough of like a social scientist to study this in any real way, but it is sort of interesting that so many of these women come from really sort of difficult, tragic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. True. And also this is the first time in a long time, the last few years, that we have not had a living presidential mother. The last one would have been also first lady, Barbara Bush, who died a couple of years ago. Uh, we continue to select slightly more senior chief executives, and so their mothers are sadly no longer with us, uh, but we do not have any longer any presidential mothers. That's right. Currently, that is correct. At the current moment. Yeah, at the current moment, at the time that you're listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> I should just start out, too, with a just very brief little history on Mother's Day, because some of you may not know um, that Mother's Day uh, is a modern holiday. It sort of begins in earnest in 1907, and it's really the brainchild of a woman named Anna Jarvis, who holds the first Mother's Day service of worship at Andrews Methodist Episcopal Church in Grafton, West Virginia. If you go there today, there's like a shrine to Mother's Day, Jarvis, Anna Jarvis, is going to sort of begin this campaign to create a holiday, Mother's Day. And she does this in honor of, of course, her own mother, Anne Reeves Jarvis, who had passed away in 1905. So she loses her mother in 1905, and she's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to create this holiday. Her mother, Anne Reeves Jarvis, was a peace advocate, a pacifist, um, who cares for wounded soldiers in the Civil War. She cares for soldiers on both sides, uh, and she really sort of advocates against taking up arms in any sense. Um, and she's going to create mother work clubs to help address public health issues after the Civil War. Anne Reeves Jarvis was friendly with a uh, Julia Ward Howe, who, um, among other things, writes the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And this is sort of something that a lot of these mothers from the Civil War start to advocate for, sort of this like pacifist idea of, I, we don't want to send our sons off to go get killed. And so when Anne dies, her daughter Anna wants to kind of carry on her mother's advocacy, wants to honor her mother. And she really creates this holiday out of scratch. And she's so passionate in her advocacy that by 1911, which is just four years after the first kind of service, all states have some observation of the holiday. Some of them have local 
areas that have designated a holiday. Some have sort of created state um, events around it. And by 1914, just seven years after her first Mother's Day service, Woodrow Wilson, named for his mother, we now know, signed mm -hmm. the proclamation designating Mother's Day as the second Sunday of May and a national holiday. So um, it's kind of remarkable, I think, how quickly Anna Jarvis is able to take this idea and create a national holiday out of it. And then, of course, as a little caveat to this story, she gets pretty disappointed pretty quickly because by the early 1920s, your companies like Hallmark are creating cards. It's, we talk now about holidays being commercialized. That was true in the early part of the 20th century as well. And so she sort of ends up being sort of disappointed with what Mother's Day turns into. Yeah, she kind of backs away from Mother's Day and is like, this isn't quite what I meant. Like, she wanted a very sincere holiday to advocate for the real work that women do. And what she didn't want was that it just be another, like, day to just give cards and things. She wants something very sincere, and she kind of backs away from it. Um, the There are two presidential mothers who were also first ladies themselves, because we've had uh, two father-son presidents, um, Abigail Adams and Barbara Bush, both of which are alliterative. Yeah, that's Did sort of think? interesting, the A-A-B-B. Uh, now we need a CC. I know we need a CC. Uh, they are the only women to be both first ladies. Well, obviously they were first ladies first, and then they were presidential mothers. Um, John Quincy Adams is, um, ever so John Quincy Adams about this. Uh, he said, and this is a quote, my mother was an angel on earth, she was the real personification of female virtue, of piety, of charity, of ever active and never intermitting benevolence. So a bit of a mama's boy. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. She, Abigail Adams must have been a whole, whole thing. Her daughter-in-law did not say particularly kind things about her. Her relationship with Louisa Adams was... More tense. Rough. I don't know if not, your husband thinks your mom, his mother's the greatest thing on earth. It's a lot to live up to as a wife. That could be, that could be complicated. So I yes. feel for Louisa here. Yes, I kind of do too. Uh, Louisa called Abigail the guiding planet around which we all revolved. And she didn't really, I don't think she meant that in a good way. <laughs> Um, I think that both Abigail and Barbara are deserving of sort of their own episodes because yes. they both share, you know, 150 years apart, a very sort of unique experience of serving as first lady and then raising a generation of presidential leaders and, and really a, a, a generation of political leaders. And so to have played both of those roles makes them both very unique. And it just is so interesting to me, so much of what you read about first ladies and also about mothers, uh, presidential mothers, is how much they shape the man in their life. And so to be both really is bespeaks an extraordinary person, someone who can help their partner become president and then raise someone who will become president. That bespeaks some sort of, I feel like, really interesting. Uh, and as you'll see, there are a lot of mothers uh, that were interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting presidential mothers. I will say, too, that when we tend to talk about presidential mothers, they sort of seem to fall into sort of two categories broadly. One is sort of saint on earth, the nicest, yeah. kindest, sweetest person that ever lived, did so much for, for others. It's not surprising to me that many presidential mothers are nurses, teachers, mm -hmm. educators, you know, active in their community, deeply rooted in their, their churches and civic organizations. And then there's the other vein of presidential mothers, which are ambitious, you know, controlling, controlling, 
domineering, uh, women who are interested in politics. And both Abigail and Barbara fall, I think, into that second category in a lot of ways. And these are women who, as First Lady, are exceptionally politically savvy, mm -hmm. are active in their husband's politics. So it's not at all surprising that when they're raising sons, they very much intend for their sons to follow that path. Um, yes. And by no means do I think one one type is better than the other by any means. I think all these women are fascinating. But it is interesting that the only two women to have kind of hit that particular spot, you almost have to be. You have to be politically savvy, engaged. You have to have ambition um, to sort of be able oh, to do both. Yeah. And, and, to, also and to guide your men to do both. You also see the like that women tend to fall into a dichotomy. Like we have, we don't have a range of like experiences. We have one or the other, and I think that that's also not fair. Um, and speaking of one or the other, <laughs> our first presidential mother is the mother of our first president, as it happens, Mary Ball Washington. She gets a bad rap, y'all. I feel intensely bad for Mary Washington. She just so first of all, she's her. George Washington uh, is her first son, but she's the second wife. So his father, Augustine, already had a family and had a bunch of kids. Mary is the second wife. And George is the first of five children that she has with Augustine Washington. And then Augustine Washington dies when George is only about 11 years old. So she's like relatively young, not even 35. And she's got a bunch of kids to raise. One doesn't live. And... They don't have like the Washingtons, like George Washington doesn't grow up hyper wealthy. He becomes hyper wealthy because he's smart, but he doesn't grow up that way. And so she's got to negotiate with her stepchildren who are almost her age. And it's a lot. I feel intensely sort of that she gets kind of the bad rap. She most of Washington's biographers paint her as illiterate, shrewish and embarrassing to her soon to be famous son which makes me sad a lot. And to which we have no real evidence of, um, other than, you know, there are some letters from George where he can be critical of his mother, especially as she's aging and as they're trying to determine how to make sure she's set up the way that she needs to be at the end of her life, especially when she's struggling with breast cancer. Um, but like, that's kind of typical stuff, right? Everybody has whatever with their parents. Um, yeah. But biographers often point to, you know, one or two letters where he's stressed and worried and, uh, and frustrated just sort of as evidence that he was embarrassed or ashamed. And um, in Alexis Coe's book, You Never Forget Your First, she really digs in to the, the evidence there and goes, okay, well, how can she be illiterate if we have letters that are written in her hands? Yes. And she educated George Washington at home. So you couldn't have been totally illiterate to do that. And frankly, every choice she makes when George Washington is a child and young teen basically sets him on the path to become the George Washington. And I always point to this sort of one uh, kind of incident, which is uh, George, when he's young, wants to join the Royal Navy. We're still British colony, right? When George Washington's mm -hmm. a teenager. And, uh, you know, his half brothers, they'd been off to England. They'd been educated there. George is feeling a little like, man, I haven't had the same opportunities. I've been stuck here um, in the new world. I want to go join the Royal Navy. And Mary keeps him from doing that. Mary Ball Washington is like, no, no, no. You're not going off to the Navy. First of all, she's probably like, I know what goes down in the Navy. That's not for my sweet little darling boy. Mm -hmm. But also, she doesn't see a lot of advancement financially in being, you know, 
a shipment, what, where, where can you go with that if you're not part of the aristocrats? the aristocracy yeah. you know, or that's not how you say that <laughs> aristocracy <laughs> you're not part of the aristocracy no people can know that i'm dumb uh, it's okay uh what she does is she basically says nah george you're going to be better off staying in virginia you need to try to be a gentleman farmer you need to acquire land there's opportunities to invest here and so he takes his first job or goes on this path of being a land surveyor because of her which y'all i don't want to blow your minds but if george washington had joined the royal navy think he would have become the George Washington we know today. Right. Would he have been general of the Continental Army? I doubt it. He would have been in the Navy. Yeah. All over the place. Who knows where? I it she's interesting to me. She really promotes him to be close to his half brothers, which is something that when you have like a second family, you could go either way. Like the father's dead, but she really wants George to be close to uh his particularly his oldest brother Lawrence. And she kind of knows and he gets this from her. He like she knows that he's gonna have to make his own way financially, that the money and the connections went to Lawrence, the oldest brother. Now Lawrence dies relatively young, but obviously she didn't know that at the time and so she's gonna basically promote him to go his own way become a surveyor he makes a lot of money doing this and then he gets involved in the um, virginia colonial militia and sort of makes his way as a soldier she lives a long time um, she lives to see her son elected president of the United States and then dies right before he's sworn in. So she actually does live until 1789, um, just shy of seeing him uh, president, which is quite a long life, particularly, you know, at that point. And it's like, I just, I find it remarkable. She's the single mother. She really keeps the family together. She keeps George on a path that leads him to become the thing that so many people revere him for. So for all the sort of criticism that you often find in biographies about her, it's also like all the choices she makes set George up to become the man that you're writing the book about. So it sort of just drives right. me batty. And I, I, you, we find other letters where he speaks more thoughtfully about his mother. He clearly respects her. Um, when she dies, he wears a black mourning badge for five months after his death. And he's not a big guy on outward displays of emotion, um, which is true of the era, but especially true of George Washington. He really sort of values having this kind of persona of like level-headedness and not big emotional displays. And so the fact that he sort of wears this mourning badge for such a long time, I think indicates, if nothing else, the real respect he had for her. I also feel like just to go back to our Tobias Lear episode for a minute, I feel like this is where the burning of his correspondence really sort of hurts um, we don't have a personal lot side. of information. We don't have a lot of personal stuff. We don't have any like real indication of, you know, Mary Ball Washington and Martha Custis Washington, George's mother and wife, would have interacted for decades. We don't really know how that went down precisely. So there is, I feel like that's sort of, we were losing a little bit of the sort of shading of that relationship there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're going to jump forward to Lincoln and his mother and stepmother. But a lot of the presidential mothers in the interim, we don't have a ton of information. Uh, we know that Jefferson's mother dies when he's relatively young. Uh, and that's like there's a bunch of other presidential mothers that don't really they don't have a Wikipedia entry. This they don't is seem to also have just the reality, right, about childbirth in this yes. era. It's the reality of medical care. Um, yes. You know, so these women don't live long into adulthood often. That's one of the things that makes Mary Ball Washington 
I think unique is how long of a life really? she lives for the era, yeah. um, especially given that the fact that she has a fair number of children. But, you know, it's sort of, I think, illustrative too of the differences between the 1700s and the 1900s the 1900s yeah you want to take lincoln because he's yeah your we dude? can touch a little bit on lincoln lincoln's moms we'll talk we'll talk about his moms because abraham lincoln's biological mother is nancy hanks lincoln who yes is indeed related to Tom Hanks. So there is a direct connection between America's sweetheart, Tom Hanks, and America's 19th century sweetheart, Abraham Lincoln. And it's through <laughs> Nancy Hanks. Um, Nancy uh, Hanks Lincoln uh, will marry, of course, uh, Abraham Lincoln's dad. She's going to have three children, although one dies in infancy. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is her second child, um, although uh, Abraham Lincoln's sister Sarah also dies relatively young. So as is true in this era, uh, and again, kind of true among these men who become president, there's often loss and tragedy there. Um, she is described in a way that I think actually makes me think that Lincoln looked quite a bit like her outside of his height. Um, her skin was of darkish complexion, her hair dark brown, eyes gray and small, forehead prominent, face sharp and angular with a marked expression for melancholy, which fixed itself in the memory of all who ever saw or knew her. Though her life was clouded by a spirit of sadness, she was in disposition, amiable and generally cheerful. Does that not sound like Abraham Lincoln? Sounds just like Abraham Lincoln to Other me. Other than the fact that she's ordinary height and he's exceptionally tall, the angular face, the prominent forehead, yeah. you know, and he has that kind of sad, melancholy look. And yet so many people who knew him would talk about despite everything. He could tell a joke. He could be cheerful. He could see the sunny side. Um, so to me, it's sort of, I think, kind of sweet to think that he was probably very much a pair to his mother. Unfortunately, though, she dies quite young. Um, Lincoln is only nine years old when Nancy Hanks died. Um, she's only 34. I mean, these women are exceptionally young often uh, at the time that they pass. She dies of illness. It's unclear uh, if it's milk sickness or it's consumption. Um, but this is going to be sort of one of the first tragedies that Abraham Lincoln faces. It is by no means the last, uh, as you know, if you've listened to any other. Now, um, his father is going to remarry a woman named Sarah Bush, uh, becomes Sarah Bush Lincoln, and that is Lincoln's stepmother. And by all accounts, he has a very uh, loving and pleasant relationship with Sarah as well. And that's not always the case, right? When you have yep. sort of these uh, inter intermarriages, uh, family merging and all of that, it can be difficult. But um, Sarah sounds like she was kind of maybe the best person to sort of raise the son because she's a she's a tough lady. She's a frontiers woman. She's mm -hmm. like been out on the rough ends, edges of this country. Um, apparently, she was like no tolerance for tomfoolery. She didn't like drinking. She didn't like cussing. Um, but if, it, if something needed to be built, she'd build it. If they needed to go out and hunt, she'd hunt. Um, and she really thought education was key. Yes. Um, and she uh, knew that there were opportunities coming in this new country, that the country was in a place where it was growing and booming. And she wanted her children, including her stepchildren, to have the best opportunity to take advantage of that. So while Abraham Lincoln only goes to sort of formal schoolhouse schooling for a year, she takes a very serious view of his education at home and is going to just constantly bring books um, for him 
obviously religious texts, but a lot of other important books as well. Um, Lessons in Elocution, she's going to buy him or purchase books on uh, oratory. These are all going to be huge influences on the Lincoln we know and love. And so I think it's sort of fortunate um, that Lincoln has kind of two really wonderful female role models. He has a loving, wonderful mother in his kind of childhood years. And then in his teen years, he has a stepmother who really sees the potential in him, really nurtures um, this intellectual side, um, and also has a good sense of humor, uh, has has this sense of like, roll up your sleeves and do things. And I think it's just two wonderful influences. Uh, and Lincoln never forgets his mother, Nancy. He would say uh, later in his life when he was asked about her, all that I am or hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. So if any of you are thinking about what to put in your Mother's Day cards, it's pretty good. There you go. That's it. But cannot do better. Um, as with all things, Lincoln says it best. Um, he His stepmother outlives him, actually. Yeah, that's, she, she lives, lives a long quite time. a long time. She does not. She's By the time he is president, she's elderly and not in great health. But she um, was very nervous about him going off to become president. She said that she was worried that she would never see him again. And as it turns out, she didn't. Um, I'm going to skip to um, Martha Bullock Roosevelt, Becca. Uh, this is the first mother Roosevelt. We've had two presidents Roosevelt. So obviously we've had two mothers Roosevelt. Um, this so is Mother's Roosevelt. Roosevelt is a series I would watch. Absolutely. We should. For this, that's a good band name, too. Every episode um, now, I'm just going to keep pitching HBO till they hire us to do a show. <laughs> I think that would be great. Um, Martha Bullock Roosevelt is a Southerner. She's born actually in Connecticut, but she, yeah, I know. You read all this uh, stuff about her being like this true Southern belle, and then technically she was born in Connecticut. I know, right? But she only lives there like four years, so we'll let it slide. She, but she's raised in Georgia. You know, um, she's considered a true Southern belle. She's from a wealthy planter family. She is uh, allegedly the inspiration for Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, which I find to be amazing. Uh, apparently, Margaret Mitchell, who writes um, Gone with the Wind, interviewed one of Martha Bullock Roosevelt's bridesmaids and best friends all about her life for an article she wrote, which becomes sort of the the basis for what becomes Gone with the Wind, which is why people think perhaps she is. But if you sort of read Scarlet and you know a little bit about Martha's life, and her nickname was Mitty, um, she's outside of the city of Atlanta. She's very much, Teddy Roosevelt called it unreconstructed. Yes. Very loyal, very loyal to the Confederacy. Um, so it's easy to sort of see the parallels. And you got to wonder, man, like, Mitchell talked to her best friends, so... Yeah, I know. Mm. <laughs> She's, by this time, by the time the Civil War happens, she has married Theodore's father and, in fact, had Theodore. Uh, and so she's in New York by that time. Theodore Roosevelt is born in 1861, so she's not in the South for the war, but several of her brothers fight. And so Theodore Roosevelt will grow up visiting the South and meet, you know, his Bullock uncles, and they'll talk all about their exploits. And so the his mother's side of the family is actually a big influence on him. His father was, you know, very patrician, but not like a an outdoorsman. He kind of gets all of that stuff, I think, from his mother's side of the family. Yeah, uh, she, her family were they were enslavers between thirty and thirty three people enslaved on their plantation uh, before the war. Uh, so she is that's sort of what she's kind of upholding as well. Um, and she dies tragically. 
this is, we talk about Alice in our very first episode, we talk about Alice Roosevelt Longworth, um, Teddy's eldest child. And we talk about how two days after she's born, her mother dies. So Teddy's first wife, Alice, dies. But on that very same day, February 14th, the worst Valentine's Day ever, I would say, um, February 14th, 1884, Teddy loses not just his beloved wife, but he loses his mother, Martha, who Mm -hmm. he's exceptionally close to. Um, He and his mother are very close. Uh, He has a great deal of respect for his mother. He thinks she is just the epitome of all that is lovely and wonderful, uh, and she dies. So on one day, he loses this mother that he so admires. He loses his wife. It's so tragic. And she's only 48, Martha Bullock Roosevelt, when she dies, which I still think is quite young, especially uh, for this era. So you can imagine um, for Teddy how heartbreaking that is. He writes a single letter in his, or a single um, sentence in his journal that day, the light has gone out of my life. so really, really tragic. And uh, as we kind of touch on in the Alice Roosevelt Longworth episode, uh, Teddy doesn't deal with these two losses particularly well. He kind of has to go out West and like do man stuff and sort of like not be around his baby for a while <laughs> to kind of deal with his grief. And I, I think it's really the double loss that throws him yeah. into such turmoil. I can't imagine both of those things happening at the same time, like happening at all, but like the same day, like that just is the exact same day. Uh, it's, it's so much. Uh, Teddy says, my mother was a sweet, gracious, beautiful Southern woman, a delightful companion and beloved by everybody. Um, you know, she's sort of the outgoing, charming, witty one. Uh, I think Teddy gets a lot of that from her, gets that sort of gregarious nature, gets that Mm -hmm. ability to charm, um, from, from his mother. And then, uh, of course, not too soon after, we have another Mother Roosevelt. I have so many feelings about Sarah Delano Roosevelt. I'm so excited. So Sarah Delano Roosevelt, as we were talking at the beginning about, like, presidential mothers fall into one of two categories. And the second category is that they're ambitious and driven and determined. She's like the er example of that. Um, She is uh, old money. She marries and widower she actually is a debutante and fairly decent looking like actually fdr as an adult looks kind of just like her um he is she has a lot of suitors but she falls in love with a man who's twice her age uh franklin roosevelt's father james already has a a, a, he's a widower so he's got a a son that is the same age as the neck his his second wife so she marries a man who's twice her age with a son that's her age and her father's not super pleased about this he does not want his daughter marrying this much older man but she's like in love and so they make a thing of it um she has difficulty having franklin and is told by her doctors not to have any more and so she's relatively young she's still in her 20s and she's got a husband that she's very very pretty sure she's going to outlive by a number of years and she has only one child and so she's going to put all of her cleverness all of her ambition all of her um like the way that she sees the world all of her mothering all of her devotion she pours into franklin and he because they're inseparable Which is really unusual for this A time period, this is the late 1800s, and for their social class. You would have had nannies and governesses and servants doing that, and Sarah's like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I don't want to do any of that. She wants hands-on and hands 
on is the way. Like she, when he goes away to high school and college, she will get like a house near both of those places. He goes to Groton Academy, which is in Connecticut, and then Harvard, which is obviously in Boston. And she'll like rent houses nearby so she can like be there. And by this time, like Franklin's father dies. He's pretty elderly. He is sick for a while and then he passes away. So she's a widow and she has like nothing else in her life but to devote herself to her only son. And as I'm sure you will not be surprised to learn, she does not approve of a single girlfriend that he ever has. There's never a girl good enough for her perfect Franklin. (laughs) I just... We need a psychologist to weigh in. If you're a psychologist, please, please email us on this. (laughs) She doesn't approve of... Like, he has other women he dates before Eleanor. Uh, but Eleanor, she does not approve of Eleanor Roosevelt. She doesn't want them to get married. She thinks that, um, I mean, no one's good enough for Franklin. Uh, she tries to get talk Franklin out of it. And this is like the only time in his life that he really like stands up to her. He's intent on marrying Eleanor and he's going to make this happen. And so all the obstacles that Sarah throws in his way, he kind of overcomes them, obviously, and marries Eleanor. But she becomes then the mother-in-law from hell. And I feel very strongly this is true. She interferes constantly. Franklin never in his entire adult life owned his own home. The homes that he owned were shared with her or, you know, the White House. Um, she, When they moved to New York City in early in his career, she will purchase them a duplex. And basically, she'll be on one side, he'll be on the other, and they'll have several intersecting floors. She actually tells, Eleanor and Franklin have six children, five that live. She will actually tell Eleanor and Franklin's children that they're really her children. Eleanor just gave birth to them. Yikes. And I have opinions about that. Well, this is really like not just mother, presidential mother, but like presidential mother-in-law, like yeah, drama. rough. And... Eventually, like, she lives with it, and she'll actually defend Eleanor when Franklin sort of strays later on in life, and she lives a long time. She lives well into his presidency, into her 80s. She dies two weeks shy of her 87th birthday, and in fact, Franklin's with her. She is at their house in Hyde Park, New York. This is September of 1941, so we are not in the war yet, but the war is happening. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. He will take the day, like, and go up to Hyde Park because he knows that this is it. And he will spend the day chatting with her in her sick room. He leaves occasionally to take, like, notes and, you know, commander-in-chief stuff. But for the most part, he, like, puts the presidency on hold. And she, they die with her, or she dies with them holding hands. Like, he's there the whole time. And he'll wear armbands, like, mourning her for months. And it's a a very sincere loss. And they will be, they remain close, extremely close um, for the rest of his life, for the rest of her life. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. But also, I, I think about Franklin Roosevelt, in particular, sort of his his background and his social class in the time period. And without his mother's sort of push and guidance, would he have ended up on the path to the presidency? Because there's a lot in his youth that sort of suggests maybe not. Um, yeah. He doesn't he doesn't seem to have the same ambition drive um, for that, like a lot of men of money and leisure. Right. Like, why waste it being president? Um, right. 
you know? And so I sort of think, you know, she's a lot and you could really delve into what the psychological impact this all has. But I really think he probably would never have made it to the highest office and then gone on to be our longest serving president without her. I completely agree. I think that, and she also, and this is another strain I've seen in presidential mothers. This is actually true of Bill Clinton's mother too. I listened to a biographer talk about Clinton. Uh, It's true of Sarah Roosevelt. They grew, when their children were born, from the minute they were born, they said they told their sons they were perfect. They could do anything they wanted. There was nothing out of their reach or out of their range. Like they were smart and perfect and wonderful. And I feel like that constant, like, reinforcement gives you an unshakable confidence and you can see it in both men like for whatever else they are bill clinton and franklin roosevelt were insanely were and are insanely confident and have this sort of view an optimistic view of the world that's really like kind of oddly similar and it particularly i think from the 20th century on serves a potential president right when we get Mm -hmm. into the era of of mass media we get into the era of radio television newsreel you know that sort of projection of confidence earned or otherwise is makes you for an appealing candidate and it makes for the kind of president that people you know feel like they can support and get behind and so it certainly is sort of the the right time to for that. They both sort of hit on that at the right time. As a little sort of compare contrast to Sarah Delano Roosevelt, I was really interested digging into Ida Stover Eisenhower, mother of Dwight D. Eisenhower, um, a woman who could not have wanted her son to have been involved in any of the things he was involved in any less. She, like a lot of the women who raised these men, has a pretty difficult childhood. Her mother dies at age five. She's passed off to her maternal grandparents. They're uber religious and very strict. Um, They eventually tire of raising her and pass her off to an aunt and uncle who do not believe that girls should have any sort of education at all. Um, They don't want her to read anything that's not a Bible. Um, She wants to go to school. She actually tries to enroll in high school and they refuse to sign the paperwork. And so she runs away way. Uh, She flees. Uh, This is a young woman like in the the turn of the century. I mean, this is a really sort of remarkable thing that she does. Um, She will ultimately become a teacher and a lifetime, a lifelong educator, which does not surprise me if you have education denied to you. That's something you're going to be really passionate about. She is also going to be a lifelong pacifist, um, very strongly so. It's rooted in her religious beliefs. She truly believes that thou shalt not kill. That means it in every context. And so she is (laughs) really, really disappointed when her son, Dwight, goes to West Point. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, she's super pacifist. So what does her son do? Go off to West Point. The military, military you know, the military academy. It's like the greatest heartbreak of her life. Um, They obviously will not become estranged over it, but she's so disappointed. Um, It's just really sort of just not within her sort of belief. Um, She thought warfare was rather wicked and should not be partaken in. Um, she, by the way, Eisenhower is one of like seven kids that she has. So she has a ton of children to raise and focus on as well. And she will be widowed, um, and lose, um, her children around the time. So she really, by the time that Eisenhower sort of, um, 
his career starting to grow, um, she's kind of like off on her own uh, a little bit, kind of widowed and, you know, her kids are growing up. And so she gets very, very involved in a number of civic organizations in Kansas. Um, she's going to be a just very engaged citizen, as it were. Um, she's named in 1945 Kansas Mother of the Year, which I guess if you've raised the man who's helped win the Second World War, they're going to call you Mother of the Year. Good job. Yeah, I agree. Um, Eisenhower says of his mother, many such persons of her faith, selflessness, and boundless consideration of others have been called saintly. She was that, but above all, she was a worker, an administrator, a teacher, and guide, a truly wonderful woman. Aww. Eisenhower had a real way with words. He's a very excellent writer. I think that's just very sweet. Uh, Rose Kennedy, just to drop her in real fast. Rose Kennedy, as we mentioned earlier, lives like 103 or four incredible years. She survives at least five of her nine children, um, which is also amazing and a little intense and a lot. Uh, she is someone whose sort of influence is uh, more domestic, but she also kind of... I mean, she's the matriarch of the sort of Kennedy clan. And for a lot of years, she sort of the sort of directs what's going on. I think she is someone who in a um, more modern context is sort of ripe for a reconsideration. She is seen often as uh, a prude and um, not really like their, her relationship with uh, Kennedy's father is there's a lot of ink spilled about that and sort of why the, all the Kennedy sons become sort of philanderers. I think that there, she is someone that's due for a little bit of a reconsideration, uh, Rose Kennedy. Absolutely. Um, and then finally, I thought we'd bring it somewhat more contemporary. Um, we, as we often say, we don't talk about people alive on this podcast, but yet sometimes you have to. And I really want to talk about uh, the mother of Jimmy Carter, Lillian Gordy Carter, who was known as Miss Lillian um, by everyone mm -hmm. who knew her and by the press. Um, she is born in Georgia, so um, she really is a Georgian through and through, born and raised. She is indeed related to Barry Gordy of Motown Records. It's a bit of a complex family tree, and I'm not going to try to explain it, but like I had to look it up. I'm like, Lillian Gordy, that's kind of interesting. She is indeed like somewhat cousins removed of some kind to Mr. Barry Gordy of Motown Records. Um, Lillian is going to volunteer to serve as a nurse during World War I. So she very much um, is uh, interested in nursing, but also very passionate and patriotic. And so um, she's going to volunteer. But by the time she volunteers, the program is canceled uh, sort of towards the end of the war. She does end up going to nursing school in the 1920s. She was really known uh, for being, one, an exceptionally loving and wonderful nurse, but also by her sort of refusal to abide by the social norms and Jim Crow laws of the day. This is the Deep South. Um, and yet, as a nurse, she will treat Black patients. She will invite Black visitors into her home through the front door. She keeps mixed company. She will host integrated Bible studies and events. Um, even when she gets married and starts her family, uh, women of this era often Stopped working. Um, she stops working at the hospital as a nurse, but she continues to essentially work as a nurse practitioner through the rest of her life um, for her husband's company. So the the employees that work for her husband get medical care from her. Uh, she serves as a nurse practitioner through her community and often goes to minister to. Um, the black community um, for a few years to make extra money because she's got you know 
four kids. They need a little extra income. She's the house mother for a fraternity at Auburn University. So 150 men, like, you know, they have house mothers to keep them from totally, I guess, going too wild. And she was a fraternity house mother. I just think that's super fun. Uh, Then... In 1966, at the age of 68, she applies to the Peace Corps, which I think is incredible. She's almost 70. Um, the Peace Corps, re- it's part of the Kennedy administration, right? It's this new sort of vision. So it's a new program. And she's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done. I'm done raising kids. I'm done doing this stuff. I'm going to go to India for 21 months. Uh, and I think that's amazing. Uh, she just decides to be part of the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps is really designed theoretically for sort of young people to get engaged in civic mm-hmm. involvement and uh, volunteerism. And yet she just jumps kind of like feet first into the Peace Corps, does almost two years. Um, she will go and do um, nursing there, works with leprosy patients, um, really remarkable stuff. And uh, all along the way, she is just known for loving her children, for being their biggest boosters. She is a big part of Carter's presidential campaign. He loves his mother. He loves to trot her out and bring her to events. The press loves her because she's sweet and funny. And she's got this cute little Georgia accent. She writes two books during his campaign and then presidency. So people felt like they knew her. So when um, she was out on the campaign trail, people would come up and talk to Miss Lillian and ask her questions. And she would talk to anybody. Um, she just was kind of like America's mom uh, during mm-hmm. that time. And then I loved it because obviously, you know, she has her son, Jimmy, he becomes president. Um, but, you know, she's got some other kids, including her son, Billy, who very famously has a beer company. Um, <laughs> you, If you're old enough to remember the Carter administration may remember this. And so her son, Billy, had a big ribbon cutting ceremony for his, you know, Billy Beer um, sort of company. And she was asked by reporters if she was going to go to the ribbon cut- cutting. And she said, I attended Jimmy's inauguration, didn't I? As though those are two completely equal events and she loves her sons equally and she is just not going to favor one over the other. Um, And because she lives uh, quite a long time, she lives to be 85. um, She lives through um, her son's presidency. There's a lot of photographs of Miss Lillian with Jimmy and they're some of the cutest pictures ever. Um, There are just so many pictures of them sort of traveling around and her spending time uh, with him. Um, But yeah, she passes away. in the 80s, there's actually a nursing center in Plains, Georgia, named for her. She's been inducted into a number of sort of Georgia Women of Achievement and Hall of Fame uh, sort of groups. And that's some presidential mothers. There's so many cool moms. Um, and um, I, we didn't talk at all really about Barbara Bush particularly. And um, there's just so the women who raise the men who become president of the United States, I think are due for some sort of reconsideration because like it's such a, a job that there's so much of being president, I would imagine, comes from a, a wanting to serve and a wanting to do what's best for the country. And that is something that you learn from a young age from your parents, I would imagine, like the call to service uh, and to sort of represent your country. And so I find it really interesting that no one has really done a particularly good study of presidential motherhood. Um, and I'm glad that we talked about this. So happy Mother's Day to all the mommies out there. And uh, we will be back in your ear holes in a couple weeks. And we're going to talk about something to do with the other big holiday uh, in um, May, which is not Becca's birthday, but in fact is 
Memorial Day. Thank you guys so much. We're looking forward to seeing you next time. Well, hopefully we'll see you out on the streets of DC. Thank you. As always, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Bye. everybody. Bye.